It's Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And coming right out of the gate on our episode on Romans 13, I just like, I know we usually start with some light banter, so just one that's maybe thematically appropriate. JT, who, who, who did you vote for? And Jen, you can go next. <laughs> I voted for King Jesus. <laughs> the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus oh, of Nazareth. Okay. That's great. Good answer. Jen, who did you vote for, Kyle? Uh, you also wrote in King Jesus, Jen. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I just, I write Jeff Wilkin in all the time. That's my go-to. Now, one. that's a good option. I'd put him for VP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Or maybe like Comptroller. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dallas County Comptroller. <laughs> I never know what the Comptroller does. I really should Google that. Uh, yeah. If Jeff was going to work in the government, what would he be? Uh, a spy? A spy, a probably. Spy. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question, JT. I'd have to give that some thought. I don't think he would, he's the kind of person you would want to work in government because he does not care what people think about him, uh, right. which is why he probably would never work in government. <laughs> I, I seriously, I'm more and more, I'm like, people who are going to do that work, they got to, they got to have some, I don't know who would opt in. It, that's tough. And to all of you people who are government employees out there, God bless Grace you. You have, you have your work cut out for you. And we need you. Mm-hmm. We do. And uh, especially in light of what we're reading today, mm-hmm. uh, we are looking at Romans 13, the whole chapter. Uh, you didn't so, say who you voted for. Uh, yes, I uh, I voted for me. I felt like it was the only reasonable choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, today we're looking at, I'm going right past it, JT. So <laughs> uh, uh, we're looking at Romans 13, which is, listen, we're, 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 we're being lighthearted about it because oftentimes I feel like particularly right now, this passage is just so chock full mm-hmm. of anxiety. But the fact of the matter is, is there are some transferable principles that are involved in this passage uh, that don't require us to draw any firm, uh, divisive lines in the life of our faith or the life of our churches. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, I, I just want to say at the outset, if you listen to the previous episode, we talked about how Paul's cadence has changed and has taken on a very strong wisdom literature flavor. And if you think about wisdom literature as a genre, wisdom literature articulates principles, not you know dictates that uh, that are to be followed um, broadly or blindly. It is a principle that is to uh, be applied situationally. And so, as we head into this conversation of chapter thirteen, that is where we need to be coming from. We need to be asking, what is the transcendent principle here, and how do I apply it in my in my current moment that the Lord has placed me in. Fair? Absolutely. Romans 13, one through seven, here it is. I'm gonna read one through seven. We're gonna look at the whole chapter. I'm just gonna read a section of it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay. 
So we're going to look at all of the chapter, but we're starting here. Um, and I think let's just start with this. Uh, does the Bible have a uniform political theology, JT? Like if somebody just said, like, does the Bible have a consistent political theology? What would you? How would you answer that? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, and also, no, I think it doesn't. And let me let me tell you what I mean by that. I think the first thing that Christians need to be reminded of uh, is that. Um, the, the political theology that the Bible does give is that God alone is king yeah. and that he alone is worthy of our allegiance, our praise, adoration, affection, and obedience. And that's what Paul is just taking us out of in Romans chapters 1 through 12. Jesus is king. He has resurrected over Satan, sin, and death. He has defeated and triumphed over the powers, the principalities, and the authorities of this world. And those who are in Christ have a brand new political allegiance. Our allegiance is not to any nationality, any emperor, or any earthly authority. Ultimately, our allegiance is to King Jesus. And so, yes, it has a political theology given to us. And so maybe another way to say it is that the gospel is inherently political. It's forcing us to rearrange our political lives. And secondarily, I would say, politics in an earthly sense make for a terrible religion. And that's, I think, one of the things that Paul is getting at here is that our political authorities in an earthly sense are no longer our ultimate authority. Jesus is. Therefore, don't treat them as the ultimate authority. But because you've submitted yourself to King Jesus, you can also begin to learn to submit to your earthly governing mm -hmm. authorities. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, he's not saying obey them in all things. He's saying submit to them. Be reminded that, that they have a an authority in your life, but not the authority that King Jesus has. So one of the commentaries I read says it this way, uh, and I think this is a kind of a helpful corrective of the way that this passage is read sometimes. It says, uh, this passage too often has been used to support the divine right of kings, blind nationalism, and unquestioned loyalty to rulers, even tyrants. But rather, this passage is meant to help us simply to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the royal Messiah, and that has political implications, especially in an imperial, ancient, or modern context. I find that really helpful because it's it's helping us rightly situate. Uh, maybe another way to say it is, if our party's in power, we love this passage. Mm -hmm. If our party's in power, <laughs> we hate this passage. And, and But what Paul's doing is saying, no, 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 no. It, it's actually a rightly ordering of a political life that is no longer allowing your politics to be God, but Jesus alone to be God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's helping us, if Jesus is king, to situate our political conversations as a way secondary thing in light mm -hmm. of the lordship of Jesus. I think there's even another layer to this that Romans is patterning for us, and that is just the way that the book is laid out. It doesn't start with submission to governing authorities, right? In chapter 12, we saw first that we needed to think about how we can be in submission to one another, outdo one another in showing honor. Then we saw ways that we could do the same thing with regard to our neighbors, those who might be outside of the family of faith. And now, now we're getting to the question of government. And I think the reason that it's ordered in that way is because maybe this is a little too barefaced, but the level, the measure of control or influence you have over the object of, of these discussions is, is decreasing with every new layer of the conversation. So within the body of believers, you have some measure of influence with one another. You know, you can call someone to account for the way that they behaved, um, but, but then within your community, less so. And then with the government, you know, particularly this, when you think about the original audience, what are they going to say to Rome? You know that they're they're going to be uh, they're going to have very little control over how um, mm. how they can operate in relationship to to Roman government, and so um, it's a it's an increasing call to set aside a a a, a need to um, 
to have control and and to um, to submit yourself to a particular situation. But it is not a universally applicable principle. Um, in mm-hmm. the same way that um, wisdom principles in the Old Testament address best case scenarios, I think we see that here um, to some degree as well. It's like, hey, all other things equal. This is the way that you should behave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing to note is just when we think about the Bible, what the Bible has to say about submission to governing authorities, but also just like broadly political theology in the Bible. And I think that we've kind of bounced around it a little bit. I think JT, your first comment is the, is the most crucial one, which is the central political theological conclusion of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is king. And Paul's already established that. He's talked about Christ yes. as Lord, right? He's, he's made a big deal out of that. So that's square one. I think when we think about the context, it's just to acknowledge like the, the storyline of scripture takes place across a range of various political structures. And so the political structure of Rome is different from the political structure of Egypt. The political structure of Egypt is different from the political structure of Babylon. And so the the story of scripture of God's people is taking place in different times, in different places, and subsequently under differing governing authorities. It's not monolithic. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that should be a consolation to the Christian because it means that some of the uh, guiding and general principles that undergirds Paul's words here are meant to be understood to be transferable in a range of political environments um, because the people of God had already at this point endured a range of political environments. Mm-hmm. That's good. Hey, just a quick re- recommendation here for a book that's helped me think about this. Again, it's a bit technical and a little academic, but it's the best book that I know on political theology. I think you've, I think Colin, I've talked about this before, maybe on here. It's called Resurrection and Moral Order by Oliver O'Donovan. Uh, he is, I think, one of the best Christian ethicists alive today, specific, specifically as it relates to uh, a morality of, poli- of, of political life in the polis. And the basic idea of the book is our moral order is not ultimately shaped by earthly authorities, but by the heavenly authority of King Jesus in his resurrection and ascension. And that's now the moral, and that's why Paul's saying this here, because King Jesus is alive, we can pay taxes to Caesar. Mm -hmm. Like we don't, we don't have to, because that's ultimately what this passage is about. This isn't about like, what do we do in the the case of a nuclear threat? Or or what do we do if we were at war? Like he's just saying, guys, pay your taxes because Jesus is King. You can submit yourself to the Roman authorities because Jesus put them there, and he is the one who has the moral authority through his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is, I think, sometimes a little bit of hand-wringing around the question of like, well, what about bad rulers? Right. Because, exactly. you know, like think about verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So somebody might go, well, what about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the confessing church mm-hmm. in, uh, in Nazi Germany during the Third Reich? Mm-hmm. Are they— were they resisting? Are they are they in disobedience to God's word because they resisted somebody like Hitler? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, I, I I honestly think that we overblow these these conversations sometimes. Like it's it's what aboutism in the political mm-hmm. sphere, sure. um, because I think that we all actually kind of know. You know, it's like, let's not pretend like the Bible is saying something here that it's not. Um, mm-hmm. We know that we're not supposed to submit to um, any any um, requirement that's placed on us that goes against God's higher law, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question of how you are supposed to to stand up for what is right is a, is a big question. But I think that what we tend to do is run to the exception and ignore the rule. Right. And so let's talk about the exception. I think in particular, you know, in a, in a day and age where we do see, and it feels like an increasing number, like we've got, you know, Putin's in the news right now. Like what, what is, what is the Russian citizen supposed to do um, in this moment? But I think that for general day-to-day living to overlook the, the general for the, for the, for the sake of the specific is disingenuous. We know that when we're pulled over for speeding, um, we ought not to be sassy with the person who pulls us over. We, should be submissive. We should recognize that we broke the law and that we are subject to the governing authorities. And so I think there are a thousand um, daily applications of this uh, that we want to overlook because we're so consumed with, but what do we do in the, in the exception, in the case of the exception? And not only that, but I would argue that the way that the book of Romans is laid out is telling us because it moves from the personal to the to the public is that personal holiness is always going to precede public holiness. So don't even mm. think about entertaining a conversation about how you're going to dissent in the public sphere if you have not first outdone one another in showing honor. Let love be genuine and all these things were markers for us in chapter 12. Mm. That's really good. That is good. But let's talk about it. How, how do we, how do, how do we know when we're supposed to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then how do we act in that time? Well, it seems like one of the clear ones is for rulers, when rulers become a terror to good conduct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that seems to be like part of it for verse mm-hmm. three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? It's like, well, in the event that rulers do become a terror to good conduct, you should resist them. But it's important. Yes, absolutely. But we need to make sure that a terror to good conduct is not subjective. And that's what Oliver O'Donovan's getting at in Resurrection and Moral Order is that moral order is actually objective. And it's mm-hmm. easy for us to subjectify what we think good order is, which means it requires a deep knowledge of Scripture to be able to say bad conduct. It requires a deep and intimate and abiding relationship with Jesus requires the wisdom of a discerning community. If you're the only person out here that's like, look, the government's, you know, operating in bad faith and bad conduct and the rest of the community is like, wait a second, no, they're not. Then you're probably a conspiracy theorist or a crazy person. Like you need to slow down because Mm -hmm. what we want to do is subjective. Like it's, this is not a matter of, I don't like my government. It's a Mm -hmm. matter of, is my government operating in opposition to good moral authority? That doesn't mean they believe Jesus is King. It doesn't mean that they have to have some kind of Christian nationalistic claims, but rather, are they an immoral governing authority? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when yes. we begin to talk about disobedience That's good. to governing authorities. Mm-hmm. That, and I think that part of that resistance is contingent on what mechanisms are in place to resist. Uh-huh. For example, That's right. there, there are appropriate mechanisms in place uh, in a democratic republic to mm-hmm. resist that aren't in place in a communist tyranny. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and so resistance probably should look different in a communist tyranny than it should in a, in a democratic republic. And if you behave, mm-hmm. if you resist in a way that's non-congruent with your form of government, you might be resisting in a way that is um, inappropriate or out of order. Mm-hmm. Right. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Good. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I think there are times in which we misunderstand that the governance models that are the governing authorities here are, are not. We often locate this as um, a specific person. So. Right. And, and Paul does mention 
specific authorities, but he also mentions it broadly, which mm-hmm. means that the governing authorities are not just the people who occupy governance positions. I think it's also to include the governance structures yeah. of a given community. And that means that whether it's a small governance community, for example, all local churches have a governance structure, right? So like, uh, and many of them have operations, mechanisms, apparatus within them, or they should, to keep the worst of governance uh, out and the best of governance in. Mm-hmm. And it's really subject to the people within that community to exercise those options in a way that's commensurate with the ethics that preceded this chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up his anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of his immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. I do think one of the things that's made me saddest about the way that Christians have been thinking about these things recently is that in the way that people are so quick to um, trumpet a political opinion in a social media space or something like that, Mm. I think we're showing that we actually think that the church's influence will most be felt in those statements than it will be in, as we talked about previously, uh, being a community that is shaped uh, as a family in a way that is countercultural. I think we have actually believed that our words about politics are the most important way we can shape the world around us instead of recognizing that um, it might actually be the way that we're living at peace with one another within the household of God and the way that we're um, living at peace with others as far as it's possible with us, which is not to say that there is no place for speaking up on what's going on in the public forum. I just feel like what we have done is overestimated our ability to shift the conversation by having that kind of a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Am I, I being, agree. Am I being edgy right now? I don't think is that, I, was, that edgy. I don't oh, think okay. so. Good. Good. I hope hope not. But if our but if our audience does, then I agree with you guys. If we're gonna <laughs> 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 no, 
mean, I think we can all feel it. I think anybody who has taken a shot at putting some idea, you know, like, well, here's what I really think, you know, I've held my tongue as long as I can. And then you immediately realize, oh, shoot, that actually didn't accomplish what I hoped. What it ends up yeah. doing is stirring up additional strife. And so That's I think it's a, it is a very top of mind question for believers to ask, what is the most long-term constructive way to contribute to these conversations? Um, and, and am I accomplishing what I think I am by airing, uh, airing an opinion on something that, that maybe, maybe the world didn't need to hear? Yeah. I have learned that lesson personally. Uh, and it was a very valuable lesson. Well, and you know what, like this is a, is a very personal, um, question that we need to think about because I think what, what I'm seeing in my age demographic, so I have, I have adult children, the number of parents my age who now have a a chasm, a relational chasm between where they are and where their children are because of uh, perhaps a, an overemphasis on on this this topic, like conversations around the last election or conversations around political positions um, that have compromised what I would say is the more important thing, the, the, the maintenance right. of, of a relationship with the people who are closest to. And if that's true in nuclear families, it's also true within the family of God. And I know we have all felt this in our ministry settings. Like we stood up at the beginning of Bible study back in the fall. And I, I said, if you had told me that that now would feel like a more fragile time to hold small group discussions than when we were in an election cycle, you know, a few years ago, I wouldn't have believed you, but that's exactly where we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I I do think we need to tread carefully in the way that we have these conversations um, and that we should try to live at peace with each other and, and choose, choose the right moments to have the right conversations. Yeah. I I couldn't agree with that more, Jen. I think that's exactly right. And again, we talked about this in our episode on Romans, Romans 12, we talked yeah. about verse 10 of like loving one another and mm-hmm. familial love and what a countercultural opportunity that the church has. Uh, one of the jokes that I'm making at my church right now is uh, I'm calling it Operation Don't Lose Your Mind in 2022 <laughs> or 2024, which is just like, a, but like, and of course I'm joking a little bit, but it's also like, guys, like whoever gets elected in 2022 in midterms or in 2024, like, and we're not just talking about federalized politics here. You might be talking about localized things or things that are going on at a school Mm -hmm. board or whatever it might be. Like, Mm -hmm. don't lose your mind. Mm -hmm. Jesus is king. We're, we're, we're operating a little bit in a moment of political fervor, tension and, and disunity in our country, but we also have to take a step back and think about the thousands of years that have existed in world history yeah. Specifically, let's just think about the last 2,000 years since Jesus' resurrection and all of the different political realities that have existed across the world or that exist today. And American political life is not at the height of God's eschatological plan for the world. Mm-hmm. And so we cannot, we can break the fever sweat a little bit and just realize, okay, Jesus is king. This matters. And let's have serious debates and conversations as a nation or as a church or as families, but don't lose your mind because whoever is or isn't elected doesn't change the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. So maybe just to kind of put a bow on this part, um, how do we mm-hmm. honor our governing authorities without treating them as God? So like if somebody's like, okay, because right now I do feel like there's two temptations. I mean, there's more than two, but let's just identify two 
big temptations. One is to be like, we got this whole thing's rotten. We got to burn all this stuff down. I hear that. I hear that from Christians. I hear that from non-Christians. Then there's a temptation of, uh, hey, let's, hey, guys, the rottenness isn't really that bad. Let's just kind of look past it, man. Things are pretty great and we should be really proud. Uh, and proud all the time. And any, I don't want to brook any disagreement with that at all. You know, if you can't just be thrilled to be where you're at, then you should just get out. Both of those are inappropriate. Um, both like biblically and ethically, I would imagine. Um, and practically they're, they're showing that they don't actually work. Neither of them work. So what really, how as Christians do we show honor to whom honor is owed without treating them with a, (coughs) Oh my gosh. <laughs> <I get. laughs> Please, let's leave that. That was no. so cute, Kyle. It was, it was <laughs> sweet. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's move past it. Um, <laughs> it came the on so suddenly. I, I that was not, like out of nowhere. I have not sneezed on knowing faith. And this season, I have sneezed twice during mm-hmm. recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we honor? This is not to draw parallels to, to Kyle sneezing, but did you guys see the video of the panda sneezing? No. No, I didn't. There's not. a really cute video of a panda sneezing, and it reminded oh. me of you, Kyle. Nope. Wow. Okay. Nope. Nope. I, re- I reject it in the name of the Lord. Okay. Okay. How do we Where honor were we, Kyle? How, how do we honor our governing authorities? Oh gosh. Well I'll, I'll just I'll begin. We pray for them, right? I mean, doesn't yes. Paul yeah. say, hey, first like in Timothy, pray. Pray yes. for them. Yes. And honestly, this is something that I miss from days in more liturgical spaces because this was a built-in feature in churches that use a liturgy on Sunday mornings. And I think that I forget, you know, I think it's important to have a, a rhythm around it because otherwise we become so inward, inwardly focused on like the, our, our personal or immediate needs that we, we forget that this is a high calling to, to pray for those who are in authority over us and that um, it's, it's a lot harder to vilify or um, caricature someone who you're actively praying for. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that operative word there is for them, not Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Often, I think one of the ways we honor governing officials and authorities is to not give them the godlike status that sometimes we want to give them Mm -hmm. or that sometimes they desire. We simply treat them as governmental authorities that are temporary and that are going to fade and pass in the next Mm -hmm. two, four, or six years, depending on their elected position Mm -hmm. or depending on if somebody's listening. I mean, because we have have an audience that's far outside the the American political life. You might be listening in Ireland right now or Australia. We've got a lot of listeners there and like this, you know, this American political life doesn't, doesn't really relate to me the same way. The same thing's true for you, regardless of what country you're living in right now is pray for them, not to them. Mm-hmm. They are not God. God is God. So, so I think maybe a way to summarize what Kyle was saying earlier is um, with governing authorities and structures, we should neither worship them nor revile them. We need to find the way to, to operate, um, respectfully toward them and to see them rightly for what they are and what they're able to accomplish. Yep. That's good. Uh, So out of uh, verse eight, he transitions uh, to the local and proximate and the personal. Uh, He continues to reinforce our moral responsibilities to one another. So he moves out of talking about governing authorities, which is kind of, it feels like, okay, he panned out a little bit Right. And now in verse eight, oh, no one, anything except to love each other for the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. 
And then he lists, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So he moves from, hey, submit to governing authority, show honor to whom honor is uh, owed, taxes and revenue language to mm-hmm. basically going back, hey, there's two great commandments and they sum up the the whole of the commandments that you understand. And that feels congruent with what Paul has been doing, which is Romans 12 is all about this, you know, love one another, abhor what is evil, uh, love each other like family. Hey, okay, how does that relate to a government? governing authorities. Mm -hmm. And now he's kind of coming back now to where he started in 12, uh, which is right here, the level of the, the, the level of the, the small community, the local, the proximate, the personal. Well, and he's also reiterating the, the hierarchy of law that we submit to, right? So he's Mm -hmm. gone all the way to little L law and now he's back to big L law. And for the Jewish listener, you know, in the, in the church at Rome, they're going to say, they're going to remember that actually as the law that was given to their governing authorities. So there's a lot of congruence there, but he's, and so for those who would hear, hear it strictly as, um, for the purpose of maintaining order, he now points them toward the, the underlying message, which is, um, let love be genuine. And when love is genuine, genuine and expresses itself in lawful living, Um, uh, living that is according to, certainly according to human law, which we would hope is an echo of the principles of of God's law. Um, And then certainly uh, as an expression of God's law, that God's law is actually something that if lived from the right motive is the purest expression of a love toward God and neighbor that we could ever hope to um, participate in. Yep. Absolutely. I think that's that, that's exactly right. It reminds me a lot too, you know, JT, I know that you and I have both uh, read this. It also reminds me too of a little bit of the, um, I think when we do think about cha- world changing, mm-hmm. we immediately go like way big up, right? Like we're like, okay, we got to change all the way up. But like some of this is just micro reformation at the level of love and law and order and respect and honor practiced at a community level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of the work of Yuval Levin in the Fractured Republic yeah. or A Time to Build, which is, I think a lot of, uh, right now, a lot of Christians feel paralyzed because they're like, well, there's nothing I can do about the governing authorities. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I understand that sense of, uh, of fear or anxiety, but you, there is something you can do in your neighborhood. Right. <laughs> there is something you can do in your community. You mm-hmm. could owe no one anything except love. Mm-hmm. You could not commit adultery. <laughs> you could not murder. Yeah. You could not steal. You could not covet and all of the other commandments. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we minimize the impact of that hidden or uh, let's just say local ordinary faithfulness mm-hmm. over this world changing, you know, like 30,000 feet. We've got to win the ideological war. It's like, uh, I don't know that you will. I don't even know that scripture is saying you must. I do know that it's saying that for the person that you do know, you should probably behave with the fullness of the law in mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I actually think that's where a lot of our, the kind of contemporary moments, um, uh, like there's a lot of gas behind this, like this, there's just like energy behind people needing to make this mega change. Mm-hmm. And we all realize we can't. And I think that's one of the things that's contributing to this sense of like fervor and frustration, mm-hmm. anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. because we see a change we want to make and we know that we can't make it. So we all just get on social media and blast each other about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. But this principle that Kyle's highlighting in, in, in political terms is called the principle of subsidiarity. And it's actually that the greatest change happens at the most local levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's like, have a great marriage as far as you're able. Right. Raise your kids faithfully and well. Serve in the school district. Mm-hmm. Serve your church. Show up and like disciple four-year-olds at mm-hmm. church. Like mm-hmm. get get into Kids Village if you're at the village or get into Storyline Kids if you're at Storyline or whatever church it might be that you're at. Like so, like let's just think about the next generation. Now, so many people mm-hmm. are concerned about the cultural ideologies mm-hmm. and threats that the next generation's facing, but none of them are serving in kids ministry, but they are really mad about it on Twitter. <laughs> and it's like, what if you yeah. just like... Yeah. Got real local and yeah. cared for these kids. Well, and yeah. one of the things that came out of um, our teaching prep as we were putting this together for the study at the village and uh, is Nathan Campbell, who you guys know, for his for his teaching on this, he his catchphrase was, "God cares more about your righteousness than your rights." Hmm. And I was like, "Shoot, that is so good because so much of the." So much of the things that we're screaming about are demanding our rights or or protecting our rights. And those are, it's not that we should not care about those things, but when we are so fixated on the preservation of our rights, and it's particularly in an American audience, this is what the conversation tends to always be about. You know, are we losing the right to free speech? Are we losing, and again, here the scarcity mindset behind that. Um that when you're when you're fixated on your rights, oftentimes your righteousness can fall to the wayside. And and we do we do have inalienable human rights. Like it's not that there are no rights um, to being human, um, but often we're focusing on protecting something um, at the expense of cultivating something. Yeah. Um, and that inner righteousness is is always going to be the the driving force, I would argue, and I think that's what we've been saying, in any change that's going to be of, of, of lasting impact is that it starts with personal holiness and then it ripples out from there. Uh, and then Paul moves. Uh, he says, besides, it's almost like, hey, like, okay, tabling all of that, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this is a real, um, this is a kind of eschatological reminder that Paul gives to the church in Rome that's like, Listen, the day is coming. Our salvation is nearer. Uh, I love that phrase. Uh, uh, the let us walk. Uh, excuse me. Uh, for the night is far gone. The day is at hand. I the, love that. The punchy poetic effect of it is so great. It really is. And just that sense that we lose. I think that sometimes we lose a sense of that eschatological urgency, that sense of the, the day of the Lord is at hand. And because mm-hmm. of that, we feel like, well, there's not a triumph that's coming. Mm-hmm. We forget there is a victory that's coming. And so we're like, great, I've got to make sure I, we win these wars right now. It's like, no, 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 no. The day is coming. The night is far gone. This is all going to dissipate. And at the end of it, it is King Jesus who is ruling and reigning and his world is in conformity with that kingdom. You know? And, so, and I, yeah, I think the reference to the passions of the flesh is significant because we read that and we're like, oh yeah, that means don't lust. No, it's talking about the whole, it's everything that is drawing you toward worship of self. 
mm-hmm. or of, of, of little G gods. Like those are the passions of the flesh. And I think it's, um, I think it's worth noting that the reference here is not to reference spiritual powers and authorities. Yep. The reference here is to dealing with your own uh, propensity toward, which is not to say that that's something we shouldn't consider, but in the context of talking about authority, he comes back to, you know what, you need to submit yourself to God in your own flesh. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the the transforming factor here. That's good. Just just one one final comment for me on on this pair these these passages here at the end eleven to fourteen, and Kyle, you've mentioned this, but that word eschatology just to to define it, it means like last things. This, these are the this is the kingdom that's coming, the world that's awaiting us. It's God's heavenly kingdom that's going to descend and be be a part of uh, our earthly realities. For Paul, those two things, and we've mentioned this language before. It's not just a not yet for him. He's saying, mm-hmm. tie your already ethics to the not yet eschatology. So he's saying, if you're going to live this way in the kingdom, you should be living that way now because the kingdom is at hand and Jesus is resurrected and authoritative. And so like, maybe just, you know, if you're listening to this, think about, it. is there a way that you think you're going to be living in the kingdom that you're not living now? That's what you need to change. Like now, maybe you're like, oh man, I'm going to be super generous in the kingdom because I'm not going to have a scarcity mindset. God owns everything. It's like, well, that's how you should be living now. If you don't want to operate with, with, with a personal lust, as Jen was just talking about, you're not going to be doing that in the kingdom. We'll do that now because mm-hmm. you're full of God's eschatological spirit is already in you. Mm-hmm. And so Christian ethics are always tied to eschatology. Where we're going dictates how we live now. Yeah. Gosh, that's a really, really good point. Mm, and a good place to land. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you're looking for Knowing Faith online, uh, you can find us uh, on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, and Twitter. I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm going to be like, web, so uh, so the web space. Yes. Find, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check us out on patreon.com slash knowingfaith if you want behind-the-scenes stuff, other cool features, bonuses, extras, early stuff. There are a lot of cool stuff. If you don't know this, we have a sister podcast, and they are wrapping up their second season. They've had some incredible guests on. You can check them out over at the Family Discipleship Podcast. Uh, it's it's great stuff. We love what they're doing, and we love to be on the same network with them. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Peace.